Well, once again, welcome to worship this morning. If, if you're joining us on screen, a stream, my name is Pastor Dan. I'm the pastor here at Calvary, and I'd just like to welcome you to our service this morning. This week, we'll be continuing in our journey through the book of Colossians. We pick up in uh, Colossians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 15 to 23. In this passage, Paul is combating the logic and reason of the Gnostics by clearly establishing who Jesus is and why he came. Well, I have no doubt that this was comforting to the church in Colossae, man, what a comfort it is to us today as well. As we work through this passage this morning, it has been my prayer that you would be comforted in God's passion, love, and desire for you and for his ability to bring that desire to fruition. Let us read the word of the Lord, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. A sense the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. This week, uh, Karen put this picture of Noah up on Facebook. In this time of COVID and also living so far from family, people mainly get to see this little guy growing, uh, growing up through snapshots, posted pictures with sometimes a full month in between. And babies, they, they change a lot in a month. But for this particular little man, the comment section, section has been pretty consistent. He's cute, he's precious, and he looks like his dad. This is about the time that we play that game, you know, one of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. It is pretty undeniable, though, that the little guy looks quite a bit like his father. Our text this morning tells of another son that looks like his father. Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does Paul mean when he writes that? Is it meant literally that, that Jesus the Son physically carries a resemblance to God the Father? 
so that in the face of Jesus we know what the face of God looks like? That'd be pretty cool. It'd be pretty rad to have like a, a tangible, physical representation of what God looks like, but, but we didn't have a camera back then, right? At that time, Jesus wasn't important enough to have a sculpture done of him. We don't have any record of what Jesus looked like, and so if that was what Paul was talking about, it would all be wasted. There is no lasting testament to the physical description of Jesus. But before we write all this off as no longer important, let's take a look at the Greek word icon, which is the word that we have translated to image in this text. The word icon means image or representation. Image or representation. So Jesus being the image of the invisible God is more than just talking about his looks, though that could play a part in it as well. The part that is important for us, the element that has stood the tests of time and will last into forever, is that Jesus is the representation of God's desire for man. Jesus is not so much the physical image of God on earth as he is the representation of God's will towards man. So often in our culture today, God is perceived as this big, bad, old dude up in the clouds that is either blissfully ignorant and uncaring of the injustice that is taking place here on earth or he is just itching to hurl lightning bolts down on his disobedient and rebellious creation. And then we get this image of this new figure, Jesus, coming down and and taking the lightning bolt in our place. Jesus, the kind one. Jesus, the good one. Jesus, the one who loves us while God is up in the sky intensely judging or ignoring us. For many of us, the relationship that we feel like we have with God and Jesus is one that we would expect in a, in a good cop, bad cop scenario. God threatens to bring the hammer while Jesus is nice to us. While this picture may be popular, it is not the picture that the Apostle Paul paints in our text this morning. While it may seem to some of us that God is far away, that He is uncaring, that He is distant, that if He truly loved us and loved His creation, He would step in and interfere in a more tangible way, you know, like, like Jesus did. But what Paul tells us is, again, once more for the guys in the back, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the tangible representation of God's will on earth. And that goes a lot deeper than poor little Noah looking like his father. What I passed on to Noah is largely skin deep. We don't know what his personality will be like. I have five other boys. Each of them is very different. And while I see elements of myself and Karen reflected in each of them, they are their own people. What we see in our text this morning is that Jesus, though a distinct and separate person of the Trinity, has pleased his Father so much that God is so proud of him that as we read in verse 19, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. The fullness of God is in Jesus. The fullness of God. We have a hard time wrapping our heads around that because our children, no matter how happy they make us and how proud of them that we are, they do not have our fullness in them. And man, am I thankful for that. My kids don't need my struggles dragging them down. But God doesn't have those struggles. 
Instead of struggles, he has given his fullness to Jesus, that Jesus might love in the way that God loves, that God's will for man, what he wants to teach us, and how he wants to show us, or what he wants to show us, might be fully manifest in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect ambassador of God's will here on earth. And so as we embrace that and understand that, we see that God is not some obstinate jerk that has abandoned us. How did Jesus treat his followers? Who did Jesus spend his time with? How did Jesus treat those society thought less of? What did Jesus teach? And ultimately, what did Jesus do? In Jesus, we see the passion and love that God has for us. The one who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who caused the lame to walk and the blind to see. He elevated those that society took for granted or despised. He brought low those that reached their heights through taking advantage of others. He humbled the proud so much of what Jesus did physically during his time on earth are metaphors for what he has continued to do and will continue to do until the day the earth and heavens are made new. And ultimately, as we read in verse 20 of our text this morning, Jesus reconciled us. He reconciled all things to God, all things in heaven and on earth, and he did so by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. In our text this morning, in verses 15 to 18, we are given the clearest, most concise picture in Scripture of who Jesus is, of whom the person that died for us truly is. Typically, we, we think of him as a man, and he was fully man, but let us not also forget that he was also fully God. And as our text tells us this morning, in him, through Jesus, all things were created, the heavens, the earth, all things that we can see, touch, feel, and all the things that we can't. All powers, rulers, and authorities have been created by Him, through Him, and for Him. He is before everything, and yet in Him all things hold together. This earth that we live on, yeah, He's greater than anything on it, and yet through Him all of it is, is held together. The people, the planet, the waves, the wind... Furthermore, Jesus is the head of the church, the body. He is even the firstborn among the dead so that he can claim supremacy, so that it will be clear to all that he is the utmost. There is none in all of creation that is higher than Jesus. For in him all things were created. This is who came down. This is who lived with us. This is who ate with us, who sweat with us, who laughed with us, who cried with us, who taught us, and ultimately, this is who bought us. He bought us by taking upon himself all of the sin, all of the shame, all of the guilt that we have and that we corrupted his beautiful creation with and that he had none of. Jesus took all of it and he carried it to a cursed tree, a cross, and on account of our sin, God, His Father, abandoned Him there. And there He died for all the sin that we have ever committed and will ever commit. But Jesus didn't stay dead. 
Three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. So now when we believe in Jesus, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at his children, those who believe in Jesus Christ, he doesn't see our sin. Jesus paid for that. It's gone. No, instead, he sees Christ, and so we can have relationship with God again. Jesus Christ has reconciled us to the Father. And we needed this work of reconciliation, didn't we? For whether we want to believe it or not, and no matter how much we may try to gloss over it, we can't escape the truth that verse 21 in our text this morning is uncomfortably true when it says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Without Jesus, that's still where we are. Enemies of God, without the blood of Christ covering them, our sins are bare and abhorrent. And God cannot have relationship with us because of them. How thankful I am for Jesus. For as verse 22 tells us, He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. Church, as you rest in the blood of Christ, know that there is no one who can accuse you. In Christ you are holy in the sight of God without blemish and free from accusation. Maybe that's not what you see in the mirror when you wake up in the morning. Maybe you've gotten really good at seeing your blemishes, the parts of your physical and emotional makeup that you are not happy with, that you're ashamed of. Church, know that God does not see your blemishes in the same way that you do. The same love that Jesus showed the lowly is the love that God has for you. The love that brought Christ to the cross where he took all of the accusation that could ever be leveled against you is still going strong. In the eyes of God, Jesus took any accusation that can be brought against you upon himself. Though there are consequences here on earth for the sin that we commit, Jesus has taken the wrath of God. And this, Paul writes, is the gospel that is to be proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And who is to do that proclaiming? Why, his sons and daughters, his church, are. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. How are we doing with that? We've been given the best message that could ever be given. How are we doing with sharing it, with, with spreading it? How are we doing with proclaiming the gospel to a world that needs it, a world that God is desperate to be reconciled to? Though it may feel harsh and make no mistake, it is. As I think of the job that we, the church, have done in being used by God in his mission to bring about his kingdom, I am reminded of the sad story of a large boat and the failings of humanity. On April 15, 1912, the White Star liner Titanic raised her stern above the frigid waters of the North Atlantic and began a slow, seemingly calibrated descent as her lighted portholes and towering sterns had slid silently toward the ocean floor. 
The famous knight saw the extremes of human behavior, from abysmal cowardice to the terrible beauties of sacrificial love. But with the Titanic gone and her lifeboats spread upon the icy waters among the crying, drowning swimmers, the story was almost totally devoted to self-serving cowardice. For of the 1,600 people who were not able to get into lifeboats, only 13 were picked up by the 18 half-empty boats that hovered nearby. In boat number five, when third officer Pittman heard the anguished cries, he turned the boat around and shouted, Now men, we will pull towards the wreck. But the passengers protested, Why should we lose our lives in a useless attempt to save others from the ship? Pittman gave in, and for the next hour, boat number five, with 40 people on board and a capacity for 65 heaved gently on the calm Atlantic while the 40 listened to the fading cries of swimmers 300 yards away. The story was much the same on the other boats. In number two, fourth officer Boxall asked the ladies, shall we go back? They said no. So boat number two, about 60% full, likewise drifted with her people while her people callously listened. On boat number six, the situation was reversed as the women begged Quartermaster Hitchens to return, but he refused, painting a vivid picture of the drowning overturning the boat. The women pleaded as the cries grew fewer. Of the 18 boats, only one boat, number 14, returned to help. And this was an hour after the Titanic sinking when the thrashing crowd had thinned out a little. The churches in the lifeboat of God's grace, having heard the gospel and having received its message and all the blessings that come with it, and we float in the sea surrounded by the drowning and the dying. Some of us are like third officers Pittman. We have a heart for the lost, but are discouraged from getting too close or too involved by others in the church. Some of us are like Quartermaster Hitchens, worried about the effect that those sinners outside the church might have on those of us in it. Some of us are boat number 14, and we've begun to take in the drowning, but only the easy pickings. We waited for the vicious sinners to go their own way before moving in to help. And one may argue, but, but pastor, this isn't a matter of life and death. Obviously, I'd save the life of someone that I disagreed with or wouldn't hang out with or even someone that kind of scares me if I had the chance. And I'll agree with you, this isn't a matter of life and death. It's much worse than that. A question that I've been wrestling with the last months, even years, is this. What would the church look like today if we spent less time attacking our opponents and more time loving them? So often we have adopted a hands-off method of interacting with people we disagree with. We are more content to legislate our beliefs than we are to love someone with them. We would rather give money to someone else to do mission than to actively be involved in the mission ourselves. We pay pastors, leaders, and missionaries and leave God's mission in their paid hands, hoping, expecting even that they will be more effective at reaching the people that are already in our lives for Christ than we think that we possibly could be. We are more comfortable bringing people into the programs of the church than we are proclaiming the gospel to them ourselves, right? 
We'd rather have someone that is already in our circle, someone we know, someone who has been placed by God intentionally in our lives. We would rather invite them to church than proclaim to them the gospel. We'd rather hope that they will maybe pick it up in Sunday school or the weekday Bible study or youth group or the Sunday morning sermon. We'd rather hope that one of those things, one of those programs would be successful instead of proclaiming the gospel, the powerful, potent gospel of Jesus Christ that God has given each and every one of us to proclaim. Maybe it feels like I'm beating you up this morning. Truth be told, I am. But know that I am beating myself up as well. Though I am a pastor, I am your pastor. I am still a child of God, and I am still supposed to be proclaiming the gospel to those that God has intentionally put in my life. And though I am trained to do it, it could be argued that I am even paid to do it, I am still bad at it. And as I recognize how bad I am at it, I realize how bad I am at doing basically everything in the Christian walk that I'm supposed to do. I realize that I am sitting in the boat of God's grace, floating amidst the drowning, and against all logic and reason, you know what I do? I jump back in. I say, God, thanks for the grace, thanks for the warmth, but I, I think I'm going to take a dip in that, that cold, bitter sea of sin and death. So thanks for loving me and, and for dying for me and all that you've done for me, and I know that you don't want me to do this, but it's just, it's just too tempting and so I'm jumping back in for a dip in the pool of death. And I jump back into the sin that Jesus has rescued me from. I go back to the things that I swore I'd quit forever. I go back to my shame and my guilt. For just as I am saved, I'm also a sinner. And as much as I want to, I just can't quit my sin. I can't resist. I can resist it for a long time. I, I hold out and I, I think I'm good and then I trip and find myself quite ungracefully falling out the boat and back into things I told myself I'd sworn off forever. I know I'm not alone in this. For all who are hearing my words are human too and each of us has a sin struggle that we will never Get over, not until we have been given new bodies and the sin of our old nature is taken forever. Oh Lord, come quickly. But when I go over the side of the boat, when I jump or fall back into the sin that embarrasses me, that brings me shame, what does Jesus do? Does he wash his hands of me? Does he wave at me as I go over the side? Does he turn his back on me? No. That is not what Jesus does. Jesus saves me. He covers me in his cloak of righteousness and says, Daniel, I've paid for this sin too. And he calls me to repentance. For though I am swimming outside, his will for me, his love for me has not gone cold. His grace for me has not expired. And when I repent, admit my fault and my failing, he reminds me that he has forgiven me. I am forgiven, church. When you repent and acknowledge your sin to God and ask for forgiveness, you are forgiven. 
What a comfort. We who are in the boat are no better than those drowning outside it. The difference between us is that we have the gospel proclaimed to us and have been covered by Jesus, reconciled to God by Jesus. There need be no fear of the drowning capsizing God's boat. He's sovereign. He's got all that under control. He can handle it. So let us trust Him to handle it. Let us embrace the mission that we have been given and let us row the boat of the church faithfully and intentionally into the masses of the drowning. How thankful I am for Jesus, the one who is better than all of us, who is greater than all of us, who is supreme above all creation, more powerful than all the forces of nature and yet more gentle and comforting than a ray of sunshine. This is the one who gave up so much for you, who died for you, who has called you to repentance and who has forgiven you. When you fall out of the boat, know that Jesus is coming for you and truly has never left you, but has reconciled you to God. Jesus is where we put our hope. Not in our works, but in the work of Christ. Amen.